Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Getting Internet Radio. Tonight is Friday, August 25th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Here we are going to continue our presentation of Clifton Emmerheiser's series of special notices. As we prepare to travel once again, I had great distraction with this this week, and we'll also have next week. We prepare to travel once again, this time to Ohio, to assist Clifton upon his release from medical care. We hope to bring him back here to our home in Florida, as it is increasingly difficult for him in his advanced years to survive on his own. As we have presented this series of essays, we have done our best to stress the importance of having a proper interpretation of Scripture from our Christian identity perspective. This is not a game or a joke. This is not something to be taken lightly. We cannot afford to go halfway to the truth and stop as if halfway is good enough. We cannot afford to be wrong on the issue of the nature of our enemies and the enemies of our God and what is happening to us in all of our Christian nations this very day or on the question of the non-white so-called races. But for all the time that we have been writing and preaching about this and I speak for Clifton in this regard as well as myself, we are hindered by men who claim to be identity Christians like us, but who refuse to actually identify anything properly. So we have criticized Ted Wyland, Stephen Jones, and others who deny the truth of Two Seed Line. And we have added criticisms of Eli James, who claims to accept two-seed line, but muddies the waters with his rather ambiguous views on race. He himself, he makes himself no better than a Ted Wyland or a Stephen Jones, because he refuses to admit that the other races, the goat nations, all have the same fate as the devil and his angels. So he makes a third category of so-called people, something which is not found in Scripture. Let's try explaining our position again, from a slightly different perspective. In Revelation chapter 20, from verse 7, we read, And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth. Gog and Magog, to gather them to battle, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth, and compassed the camp of the saints about, and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven, and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night for ever and ever. 
Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 draw a very similar picture by which the intent of the vision in the Revelation may be even better understood. But we will wait to elucidate that one day in the future. I believe we have already elucidated that in some of our older podcasts. The thousand years are expired, but we won't take all of the time necessary to elaborate on that. We can't do that this evening. We have another vision, very similar to this, which is described in Obadiah. For the day of Yahweh is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down. And they shall be as though they had not been. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions, and the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for Yahweh has spoken it. Then we have a picture of the coming of the Son of Man, In Matthew chapter 25. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory. And all the holy angels with him. Then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations. And he shall separate them one from another. As a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand. But the goats on the left. And then a little further on it says. Then shall he say also to them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. An honest examination of the parable reveals that the sheep are judged as to whether they did the will of God, but in the end they all go into the kingdom, while the goats are judged as to how they treated the sheep. And in the end, they all go into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. One more parable also helps us to interpret these things. Where in Matthew chapter 13, Christ had explained that the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind or every race upon an examination of the original Greek, which, when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good, the good kinds or races, into vessels, but cast the bad, the bad kinds or races, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. However, the wicked of the parable can only be those who are not justified by Yahweh God. And all of Israel is promised justification by God. As we read in Isaiah chapter 45, that in Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified. 
and shall glory. Now we shall present one more citation from Joel chapter 2. And this is widely accepted that it is also an end time prophecy. Where it says, Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in Yahweh your God. For he has given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. And the floor shall be full of weed, and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten, the canker worm, and the caterpillar, and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. Yahweh had informed the children of Israel throughout the books of the prophets that they would be punished for their sin after the manner which we read in Jeremiah chapter 30 where it says For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee yet I will not make a full end of thee but I will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. So I would challenge Ted Wyland, Stephen Jones, and even Eli James to identify the parties which are represented by the allegories in all of these parables and prophecies in a manner which is consistent with each and every one of them. For my part, I would assert that the only way to do so is to recognize that the remnant of white nations we see in the world today are the descendants of the children of Israel something which we can certainly establish in history. While the Jews are the adversary, the Satan of the Revelation, and the other so-called races are employed by them in their war against Christ. We read this in Revelation chapter 12, where it describes the woman with the twelve stars, which are the tribes of Israel. And after she fled into the wilderness... The serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. So if we properly correlate these passages, interpreting them all as prophecies for the last days, which they certainly are, then we must make the following conclusions. The camp of the saints, the sheep nations, and the good fish of the parables of Matthew the holy mountain of Yahweh described in Obadiah. All of these must be allegories for the children of Israel everywhere that they have been scattered. The locust, the cankerworm, the caterpillar and the palmer worm are all allegories for non-Israelite peoples. These are the same as the heathen or non-Israelite nations which are described in Obadiah as feeding on Yahweh's holy mountain. These are the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, which Satan gathers against the camp of the saints. And these are the goat nations and the bad fish of the parables found in the Gospel of Matthew. When it is all said and done, and these prophecies are all fulfilled, they shall be as though they had not been. This Satan, or adversary, which gathers these goat nations against the camp of the saints, are the same Edomites awaiting destruction in Obadiah, and the same dragon which Christ, which opposed Christ from the beginning, which is also described in Revelation chapter 12. 
These are principally, but not exclusively, the Edomite Jews, who are truly of the house of Esau, and who are destined to be stubble. Their Kenai ancestors and other relations, such as the Rephaim, are the seed of the serpent of Genesis 3.15, and their modern-day descendants are the Satan and serpent of Revelation chapter 20, verse 2. They can be traced in this manner throughout scripture and history. We are in this war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And we are told in Revelation chapter 20 that the Satan who gathers the nations against the camp of the saints is that same dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan that was the subject of the original pronunciation of war in Genesis 3.15. If we do not properly identify the parties in this war, how can we be, how can we be of any use to Yahweh our God as He executes His will upon us? This, this interpretation is consistent with all of the scripture as well as all of the history of our Adamic Israelite race. And it is consistent with the situation which we face in the world today. If we do not get it right, then we will forever be blind leaders of the blind, just like the denominational Christian pastors who are marching so many of our brethren straight into the ditch. We in Christian Israel identity must rebuke or even totally reject men such as Ted Wyland, Stephen Jones, or Eli James, who to one degree or another dilute or obfuscate this message since by doing so they are really only compromising with the devil therefore they are scattering rather than gathering and we accept them when we accept them we make ourselves parties to their error becoming scatterers along with them It's time that identity Christians rejected all of the clowns. We're in a war. We're not here to goof off. We're not here to obfuscate scripture. We're not here to bend or twist things a little bit to squeeze in our niglet nieces and nephews or our half-spick cousins. No, we're not. This is a war. Our objective is to win. In Christ, we know we have victory. But if we're going to partake in that victory, we must be in Christ. Or you're a virgin, off in the markets, with no money for oil. With this, we shall commence with our presentation of Clifton Emmerheiser's special notice to all who deny to seed line, part 15. And Clifton reiterates... The main warning of these special notices is to reassert that we are at war. This war has been going on now for over 7,000 years. The reason I must continue to remind you of this fact is because there are some who not only deny that this war exists, but who deny the primary players who are supplying all of the funds and those who are directing it. This war started in Genesis 3.15. It actually started back in Genesis chapter 3 verse 2. 
And the opponents are the seed or children of the serpent and the seed or children of the woman. This is a war with no holds barred by either side. This is not a war where one is to pray for the enemy or to try to convert him to Christianity. Had many of the Jews not been the seed of the serpent, it wouldn't have been necessary for our Messiah to have spoken in parables. We are told unequivocally in Matthew chapter 13, in verses 10 through 15, that he spoke in parables to them in order to prevent them from becoming converts. Shortly after this parable, he likened the Jews to tares and labeled them the children of the wicked one. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 38, the terms seed and children are used interchangeably as it says, seed are children. If one will check the word children, Strong's number 5207, in the New Testament word study on the Greek by Spiros Zodiates, on page 1404, one will find that it means a male offspring. In a wider sense, it means a descendant, or plural, descendants, or posterity. Ostensibly, this is defining the word technon, the Greek word technon. It might have been speaking figuratively, had not the word seed been used interchangeably with children. In their quest to deny two seed line, the anti-seed liners deny this Greek meaning of the words. Furthermore, the word wicked in that same verse, meaning 4190, Strong's number 4190. And I'm sorry, it's not the word technon, it's the word huios that's in question in Matthew 1338. A technon is a child. <coughs> Excuse me. A huios is a son. That's why Zodiate says a male offspring. So I apologize for that. Clifton did not insert the original Greek word in his essay, but only the Strong's number. In their quest to deny two sea line, the anti sea liners deny this Greek meaning of the words. Further, the word wicked. Strong's number 4190, which I know is Poneiros. In that same verse, according to Zodiates, on page 1198, is used with the definite article Ho, and means the evil one, or with a capital S, Satan. By denying these Greek meanings, the anti-seedliners deny the very words of Messiah himself. And of course, earlier in these segments of Clifton's special notices, we established that Wyland and Stephen Jones and Brueggemann and the other anti-seedliners twist the meanings of words like father and seed or sperma in order to deny that these things are describing two different sets opposed to one another of genetic descendants.
They totally deny that. And now Clifton will demonstrate that they twist these other words as well. Quios and poneros used with the definite article which refers to a particular entity. Clifton is right, as is Spirosodiates, that when the noun or adjective is used in conjunction with a definite article, in Greek, it refers to a particular entity, and is therefore often capitalized to indicate that same thing in English. In grammar, this is called a substantive. A substantive is a word or group of words that by themselves are not nouns or proper nouns, but are used as nouns or proper nouns, depending on the context. For instance, the Greek word kurios by itself is an adjective, and it means having power or having authority over someone or something. But with the definite article, ho curios, it becomes a noun referring to a specific authority. So in the Bible, the phrase was used in that manner to describe the Lord. Yahweh in the Old Testament Hebrew, or often either Yahweh or Yahshua Christ in the New Testament as the Lord. So where in the New Testament we see a definite article used with the adjectives for adversity or wickedness, poneros, or the Hebrew word satanus, a particular adversary or a particular wicked one is also being described. The children of the wicked one in Matthew are indeed the seed of the serpent of Genesis. Continuing with Clifton, he says additionally the word wicked, number 4190, is used with the definite article in Matthew chapter 13, in Ephesians chapter 6, in 1 John chapters 1, 3, and 5. And it means Satan in those places also. And I would say that rather, it refers to the satanic entity. Thus, in 1 John 3.12, where it says, Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, it means exactly what it says, referring to Satan. The book Synonyms of the New Testament by Richard Trench confirms what Zodiate says about the word wicked on page 330. And Clifton quotes Trench where he says that Satan is emphatically ho poneris, the Greek word for wicked, poneris, with the definite article preceding it, Hoponerus, as the first author of all the mischief in the world. Then Clifton says that in his Greek-English New Testament lexicon, George Ricker Berry on page 82 describes Hoponerus as the wicked one, i.e. Satan. W.E. Vine in his 
an expository dictionary of New Testament words under wicked on Matthew 13.38 states, and in the following, meaning that verse, Matthew 13.38, where Satan is mentioned as the or that evil one. Now Clifton warns, don't waste your time with Strong's on this one. Strong's concordance didn't get everything right. It got some things very good, but it's far too concise to be a complete lexicon. It's only to be a guide to the casual studier. It's not a deep study. You cannot study Hebrew or Greek to any deep extent with the Strong's Concordance. Clifton continues and he says, another way to verify that the wicked one, the wicked of Matthew 13.38 is speaking of Satan, is to go to Matthew 13.19 where the same Greek word, 41.90, is used saying, when cometh the wicked one, in the King James. Then compare the parallel passage in Luke chapter 8 verse 12 which says, then cometh the devil. The conclusion then must be that the seed or children in Matthew 13.38 planted by the wicked one are the genetic offspring of Satan. This parenting of the tares is also spelled out in the Aramaic Targums. And Clifton then adds a parenthetical note here and he says, I might add, if you listen to the anti-seedliners, they will argue the wheat and tares of Matthew 13 are just figurative or spiritual, the same position as the so-called Judeo-unchristian churches. And indeed, the parable of the wheat and the tares insists that the tares were planted very soon after the wheat. So we read in Matthew chapter 13, from verse 24, Another parable he put forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat, and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up, and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. This can only refer to the mingling of the races perpetrated by the serpent and the fallen angels in Genesis chapters 3 and 6, as both Kenites and Rephaim, and other non-Adamic tribes along with them, had survived the flood of Noah, which is evident in Genesis chapter 15. These mingling with the Canaanites provided wives to Esau, and that is the origin of the Edomite Jews, as well as many of the Arabs and certain other modern so-called people, if we must call them people. The wheat and the tares cannot represent people with good ideas or bad ideas, or people with good doctrines and bad doctrines. At the time that Christ told his disciples to bring the gospel to the nations. All of those nations had already had bad bad doctrines. As Paul informs us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that they had already been worshipping devils. 
And instead of the devil planting tares among the wheat, the apostles would have been planting spiritual wheat among the spiritual tares. So therefore, the parable would make no sense whatsoever. Christ tells us that the tares were sown after the wheat. So the bad had to follow the good and not the other way around. The viable conclusion is that the parable of the wheat and the tares must refer back to the planting of the Adamic race in the Garden of Eden by Yahweh, who is also Christ. The Adamic race must be the wheat, and the tares were sown by the serpent who deceived our first parents, resulting in the historic sowing of corruption amongst the members of their race. In this sense, Cain was the first tare, and then later the giants of Genesis chapter 6. And these are among the ancestors of the Edomite Jews, the Arabs, and many of the other partially white so-called people of the world today. Now Clifton continues under the subtitle, Aramaic Targums and their context with Genesis 4.1. And here we will embark on a another long discussion of the Aramaic Targums. And I pray this doesn't bore you. Clifton starts out by saying, As I promised, in special notice number 14, I will deal with the Aramaic Targums in greater detail. After years of research on the subject of two seed line doctrine, the Aramaic Targums seem to hold the missing ingredient to pull this passage into perspective. Ted R. Wyland, in his book Eve, Did She or Didn't She, had all this information in front of him, but he rejected it, claiming it was, quote-unquote, Babylonian-influenced, referring to page 96 of Wyland's book. Clifton says, this is one of the favorite ploys of the one seed liners, or anti-seed liners, in their quest to reject one of the foundational truths of Scripture. Being there is evidence that the Jewish Masoretic scribes manipulated the Hebrew text by hermeneutics with their Babylonian Kabbalistic mystical thought system. We are left with the Aramaic Targums as an alternative witness. I will now use a very concise article about Targums from the Collier's Encyclopedia, the 1980 edition, volume 4, page 127, under the topic Bible. Like many of the references I use, or Clifton uses, <coughs> excuse me, this quotation is informative, but I do not endorse it 100%. And let me say off the cuff that Clifton, just before he fell ill a few weeks ago, had sent me a paper describing the shortcomings that he finds in the popular Bible commentaries. That's one of his latest endeavors, is to write on that topic. I haven't yet proofread it, having done... He he sent me many more documents than he needed for his August mailing, so I left it unproofread. I will proofread it soon, and it will be published one way or another. 
Clifton says, quoting Collier's Encyclopedia, the Aramaic Targums, evidently a subtitle in their article on a Bible. During the middle of the first millennium BC, a Syrian language called Aramaic gradually became the dominant commercial and popular tongue throughout the Middle East. And let me say as an aside that the Babylonians were Chaldeans, the Babylonians of the Second Babylonian Empire were really Chaldeans, and Chaldeans were Syrians in the sense that they were of Aram and spoke Aramaic. The tribe of Aram was closely related to the tribe of Arphaxad, from which descended the Hebrews and ultimately Abraham and the Israelites. So the tribe of Aram was closely related to the people of Israel. And they consisted in the people in the towns and cities around Damascus and throughout Padanaram, the plain of Aram, where Abraham had come from, where his homeland was, and the related adjoining areas all the way to the city that was later known as Babylonia, founded a little later than the time that Abraham had left Ur of the Chaldees. During the middle of the first millennium BC, a Syrian language called Aramaic gradually became the dominant commercial and popular tongue throughout the Middle East. That means it was the lingua franca, the language of trade and diplomacy. And it certainly was during the Babylonian period and during the Persian period. It supplanted Akkadian, which was the tongue of the Assyrians, and with the, the rise of the Hellenistic period, it in turn was supplanted for the most part by Greek, but not in those areas beyond the Euphrates, which the Greeks didn't really maintain control of. As the Jews, or actually as the Judeans, adopted this language, they forgot their Hebrew and could understand less and less of the scriptures read to them in the synagogue. Synagogue is actually a Greek word, that's funny. Eventually, a translator was needed to render the text into Aramaic as it was read out in Hebrew. The translator was known as a Torgaman, and his translation as a Targum. Now, interrupting Clifton's citation again, because that last interruption wasn't really planned. It's not in my notes. We should make a note of something that Clifton himself elucidates later in his writings, in part 17 of his original series. The need for Targums is first recorded in Nehemiah chapter 8, where it says, in verse 8, So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense, and caused them, meaning caused the people who were listening in the assembly, to understand the reading. Here was the original use of Targums in Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 8 to interpret scripture because the original form of the Hebrew in which they were written was no longer the colloquial form of the language which they commonly understood. And this is true in spite of the fact 
that the writers of the New Testament had continued to call it Hebrew. Now to return to Clifton's citation from Collier's Encyclopedia. In time, the Aramaic Targum became standardized, and finally it was written down, the Targum just being an interpreted translation, right? The earliest written Targum we have is a manuscript of the Book of Job, discovered among the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran. It was written about the first century BC, but most of the other surviving Targums were composed later among the Aramaic-speaking Jews or Judeans of Babylon. The Aramaic Targums generally paraphrase rather than translate literally. They bring in much explanatory material and homily or sermonizing, reflecting the thought of the time. Many Hebrew Bibles of today still carry the Aramaic Targum side by side with the Hebrew text. And I would call those Jewish Bibles. There are several extant Targums which are known from ancient times that certainly seem to predate the Talmud. And therefore, they are not necessarily Talmudic. Neither can it be certain that they are Jewish in the modern sense of the word, but rather that they may actually be Judean, and it is unknown whether their origins are with true Judeans or with Edomite Judeans, the Edomite Judeans being the forerunners of today's Jews. Anyone who purports to know any of these things is not telling the truth. The Targum Jonathan is esteemed to date to as early as the 2nd century AD, but we really can't tell for sure. There are claims that the Targum Ankylos predates that, and is perhaps as old as the 1st century. Here I am going to quote from an article by Bruce Metzger, a prominent Presbyterian scholar who is evidently not Jewish in spite of his name, where he wrote the following in an article on the Targums. At first, the oral Targum was a simple paraphrase in Aramaic, and he's probably referring back to the time of Nehemiah. But eventually it became more elaborate and incorporated explanatory details inserted here and there into the translation of the Hebrew text. And there he's talking about the Targum Jonathan or the Targum Ankylos. To make the rendering more authoritative as an interpretation, it was finally reduced to writing. Two officially sanctioned Targums, produced first in Palestine and later revised in Babylonia, and this is true, are the Targum of Ankylos on the Pentateuch and the Targum of Jonathan on the Prophets both of which were in use in the 3rd century of the Christian era. That would be 200 and something A.D. During the same period, the Targum tradition continued to flourish in Palestine. In addition to fragments and citations that have been collected, the Palestinian Targum to the Pentateuch is found primarily in three forms. 
The two that have been the most studied are the pseudo-Jonathan Targum. Pseudo, because it has a lot of additions to it, which could not have been from the time that Jonathan supposedly wrote his Targum. And the fragmentary Targum, which contains renderings of only approximately 850 biblical verses, phrases, or words. In the mid-20th century, a neglected manuscript in the Vatican Library, identified as Neophyti I, was discovered to be a nearly complete copy of the Palestinian Targum to the Pentateuch. Though copied in the 16th century, its text has the distinction of being the earliest form of the Palestinian Targum. It is somewhat less paraphrastic than Pseudo-Jonathan. In other words, it doesn't have as much Kalmanor added to it. It is somewhat less paraphrastic than Pseudo-Jonathan in that its explanatory editions are fewer in number and more terse in expression. The wide divergences among these Targums clearly indicate that they are unofficial in that their text was never fixed. There are no reliable data as to who the authors and compilers were, under what circumstances and for what specific purposes they labored, and how literary transmission was achieved. And while we may not entirely trust Metzger, we nevertheless feel that this is information which is fairly accurate. As for the Dead Sea Scrolls, we are confident that they date to the Roman period of Judea, no earlier than 60 B.C., probably no earlier than the time of Herod, and no later than 65 A.D., and probably to the later half of that period. We gave our proofs for this in an article and podcast at Christogenia titled, What Are the Dead Sea Scrolls? which was written in May of 2012. Once again, returning to Clifton's citation from Collier's Encyclopedia, where it discusses the Septuagint, which is technically also a Targum, and a much earlier, a much earlier Targum than the Palestinian Targums of Jonathan or Onkelos. And it says, the Septuagint, or Greek version, The Greek version of the Old Testament began as a targum for Judeans living in Greek-speaking areas of the Middle East. Now here I would say that Collier's, like Spirosoriates, underestimates the use of Greek amongst Judeans. And that's popular, but we have proven in other writings at Christogenia that Greek was very common among the Judeans. Their coins had Greek inscriptions, not Hebrew. The inscriptions found which survive from the city of Jerusalem and from other cities at a very early time, describing things such as synagogues and the like, they're found in Greek and not in Hebrew or Aramaic. So Greek was a lot more had a much greater presence, I should say, and usage in Judea than people realize, even scholars. 
The Greek version of the Old Testament began as a targum for Judeans living in Greek-speaking areas of the Middle East. There were probably isolated Greek translations of the Hebrew Scriptures in circulation before the 3rd century B.C. According to tradition, dissatisfaction developed with the unofficial nature of these translations, and an official version was prepared by a committee of 70 or 72 eminent scholars for the library of King Ptolemy Philadelphus in Alexandria and Ptolemy Philadelphus 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 I'm sorry I'm being silly Ptolemy Philadelphus ruled Egypt from 285 to 247 BC This translation came to be known as the version of the 70 in Latin the Septuagint More probably the Septuagint represents a revised collation of the informal oral synagogue translations into the Greek. Judeans at first welcomed the Septuagint. With the rise of Christianity, however, it became primarily associated with the Christian church. The Judeans, or at this time, actually Edomite Jews, repudiated it and prepared other Greek translations. Most of the quotations of the Old Testament that appear in the New Testament had been made from the Septuagint. And Clifton stressed that last sentence with some underlining. Continuing to quote from Collier's Encyclopedia under the, te- under the subtitle The Hebrew Text and Textual Criticism, we read, All original manuscripts of the Old Testament are at present lost. And that's absolutely true. We possess only late copies in Hebrew, and those late Hebrew copies, let me say, do not date before the 10th century A.D. I believe the oldest is from the 10th century, and it's called the Codex Leningrad, and it's in Russia today. We possess only late copies in Hebrew, copies less than a thousand years old or in various ancient versions. The Hebrew texts are the product of generations of scribes and are sometimes quite altered and corrupted. Since many errors have crept into the manuscripts, the task of Old Testament textual criticism is to recover, as nearly as possible, the words that were written in the earliest stage of literary preservation. And before continuing, and, and first bear in mind that those errors, those corruptions being spoken of, certainly did affect our modern Bibles, most of which are based on the Masoretic text. And as I just said, the oldest copy of the Masoretic text, which is known to exist, is no more than 1100 years old. But before continuing, we must also note that Flavius Josephus clearly had a Hebrew copy which contained some notable differences with the later Masoretic text. And some of those differences justify the text of the Septuagint where it differs from the Masoretic text. The same can be said for copies of books of scripture found among the Dead Sea Scrolls but it's not consistent. 
this is not consistent at all. In fact, I know firsthand that many passages in the prophets found in the Dead Sea Scrolls support the Masoretic text and differ from the Septuagint where other passages support the Septuagint and differ from the Masoretic text. I could define the situation in or describe this situation in two words. The first word is cluster and you could guess the second. Continuing once more with Clifton's citation of Collier's Encyclopedia. Texts of the Sophorum, or scribes. For several centuries, the text of the Old Testament books seems to have remained relatively fluid. The scribes of the early period, 500 B.C. to 100 A.D., known as the early Sophorum, altered the text in many ways through mistakes of hearing, reading, or writing. Words were misspelled. Divisions between words were wrongly made. Words, lines, or entire passages were omitted, repeated, or transposed. Obscure and offensive words were corrected. Editorial introductions and conclusions were added. Double readings were recorded. And marginal notes were later mistaken for parts of the original text and inserted in the wrong spots. All these factors led to highly varied texts. And this is why, if you look for an article at Christogenia, titled, On Biblical Exegesis, I developed the theory and applied, applied it in my own studies, that we can only understand the Old Testament, and especially Genesis, through the lens of the New Testament, the Apostles, and the Gospel of Christ, and the Revelation, because they had a much better first-hand knowledge of the original manuscripts than we had. From this, we can see that the Septuagint was considered a Targum. This is Clifton's conclusion to what we had just read. Many swear by the King James Version Targum, or the Revised Standard Version Targum. Targum simply means a translation. Also, we gather that most of the Old Testament quotations found in the New Testament were taken from the Septuagint Targum. By his own personally invented criteria, if Targums are Babylonian-influenced, as Ted R. Wyland claims... We are going to have to refute all of these Old Testament quotations found in the New Testament of our present Bibles. Many today make the claim that our that some of our Bibles are God-breathed and without error. This is entirely true of the original manuscripts, but can hardly apply to later corrupted translations or copies. Can we claim that our translations, or Targums, are fully God-breathed? And I would say that neither can we claim that the Masoretic text is fully inspired, especially since the prophet Jeremiah had written, How do you say we are wise, and the law of Yahweh is with us? Certainly, in vain did he make it. The pen of the scribes is in vain.
and there's a better rendering of that in the Septuagint. We see there, we see in Jeremiah 8.8 that by 600 AD or perhaps 586 BC, I'm sorry, 600 BC, by 586 BC, the prophet is telling us that the text was already corrupted. Aside from that, there are a few obvious corruptions in the Masoretic editions of the Torah. It may not be entirely coincidental that these words appear in Jeremiah 8.8 and we read of the need for Targums in Nehemiah 8.8, although I am not one to be superstitious in regard to numbers. Clifton now continues under the subtitle, Could the Messiah have quoted from a Targum? And he says that from the Collier's encyclopedia comment above, it might appear that Targums were not committed to writing until the Jews, or Judeans, returned to Babylon after the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus. Now the... The testimony that we saw from Bruce Metzger had refuted that idea held by Collier's, which Clifton just expressed. But Clifton goes on and says, Notice that Collier says, Surviving Targums. We will now make a case that our Savior, when he quoted Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1, found in Luke chapter 4 verses 16 through 23, was in all likelihood reading from a Targum. This passage says, quoting from Luke, And when he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and, as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on a Sabbath day, and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened a book, he found a place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and sat down, and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened upon him. And he began to say unto them, This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. Clifton responds to that and says if one will consult various commentaries like Jameson, Fawcett and Brown's commentary on the whole Bible or Matthew Poole's commentary on the Holy Bible it will indicate that this passage is taken from the Septuagint and actually there is definite evidence for that that he was reading a script of Greek a roll from the Greek version of scripture in Luke. The Greek in the passage as it is constructed in Luke is nearly identical to the Greek of the Septuagint. And there's even a space where I believe a chapter and a half is skipped and two passages put together which are actually separated by some distance in the text of Isaiah. 
I elaborated on that in my Luke commentary. I don't exactly remember the details. But it seems that to do that, he would have been, he, he would have almost had to have been quoting a Greek manuscript. Assuming that Luke, as Luke said he did, precisely recorded the sources that he received the story from. If you will read that passage again, meaning the passage from Luke chapter 4, you will notice that everyone in that synagogue, without exception, understood every word the Redeemer was saying. And the original books of Isaiah would have been written in a form of the Hebrew language that they would not have properly understood, as we see in Nehemiah chapter 8. So whatever the language might have been, the language that Christ actually spoke in, we are informed in Matthew chapter 26, verse 73, that there was a noticeable difference in accent, I would say in dialect, not merely accent, between Jerusalem and Galilee as the Judeans had told Peter, and this is what Clifton's describing, as the Judeans had told Peter that he was a Galilean, and they understood that he was a Galilean from the manner of his speech. Clifton goes on and says that George M. Lambs's Gospel Light, in the introduction, says on page 26, the Old Testament translation known as the Septuagint was made in the Greek by Judeans for Judeans, who understood neither Aramaic nor Hebrew. This Greek text of the scriptures was not used in Palestine where it would not have been understood and where the original texts are in common use. I think it's a stretch for Lamza to say that the Judeans of the first century understood neither Aramaic or Hebrew. It goes on, citing Lamza, to say that it is worth mentioning that the Greek Septuagint was not accepted or used by Eastern Christians. This is so today. The Eastern version of the Old Testament is the authorized text of the Nestorians, Chaldean Roman Catholics, Jacobites, and other Christian groups, and in its antiquity and originality, are strongly supported by all of them regardless of the theological differences. The Septuagint was rejected partly because it contained the books of the Apocrypha, which were not included in the Jewish canon. This question was debated at the Jewish Council of Jamnia in 90 AD and settled in favor of the Palestinian decision. It was only after St. Jerome made the Latin Vulgate in the 4th century AD that the Apocrypha was accepted as canonical by the Roman Catholic Church. We must take into account, Clifton says, that Lamza is biased somewhat toward the Aramaic, as that was the language of his native origin. And about that, Clifton is entirely correct. The Greek was used in Palestine, and the apostles in Christ all spoke Greek as a second language, if not a first. Theophilus of Antioch and Justin Martyr both wrote in Greek, not in Aramaic. And they certainly were 
Christians of the East, if you want to count Antioch as being in the East, it clearly is. Clifton says, It would appear the Almighty used the language barrier between the Aramaic and Greek to separate the gospel message away from the non-Israelite Jews toward the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The Jews continued to this very day to use Aramaic targums, while Greek was used as a vehicle to spread the gospel to the true Israelite peoples. But that is no reason why we should reject Aramaic targums as a viable witness. Also, just because the Jews rejected the books of the Apocrypha, it is no reason we should reject them too. It is obvious if we should take time to study them, why they would reject them. I could point out several passages, but that is not the topic before us. Rather, I would assert that the Edomites also knew Greek and rejected it in favor of upholding their pretense as Judeans. I would also caution that not all of the books of the Apocrypha can be esteemed with equal merit. Some are certainly valuable to Christians, and others, such as Judith, should be dismissed as fictions. Bell and the Dragon. Those which should be accepted, however, often do contain statements which would be highly unfavorable to the Jews. Clifton now continues under the subtitle Stringent Rules for Targums. And he says, The Encyclopedia Britannica, 9th edition, dated 1894, volume 23, page 68, former use of the targum in public. The following rules had to be observed in reading of the scriptures at the synagogue service. 1. As regards the law, or the Pentateuch, the private person called it a law, which chiefly contains halakhic matter, read one verse of it, which the official Methurgamon, or Turgamon, the translator, immediately paraphrased, whilst the reader of the law was not allowed to take his eye off the written scroll, the Methurgamon was forbidden not merely to read out of a written Targum, but even to look into the sacred text. Each of these had to wait till the other had quite finished the reading and translation respectively. One was not allowed to raise his voice in a louder key than the other. A certain number of passages, although allowed to be read, were not allowed to be translated. These were such as might reflect unfavorably on a father of a tribe, or on an eminent teacher, such as might encourage the ignorant to think that it was some truth and idolatry, such as might offend decency, such as were fixed by the Lord himself to be read in Hebrew only as sacerdotal benediction, citing Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. The translator was neither allowed to give a literal translation nor to add anything that had no foundation in the divine word. He had to give the spirit of the letter. And and these instructions to me certainly seem to be based on Jewish superstition concerning scripture. As regards the prophets, the person called to read the prophets chiefly contain which chiefly contain Haggadic matter, the Jewish words halakhic and Haggadic, might read three verses of which the translator, 
who might be the reader himself, sought to render the meaning to the best of his ability. The translator was allowed to both read out of a Targum volume and to look also into the book containing the prophetic texts. If the reader and the translators and the translator were two different persons, they observed the third rule given above for the case of reading the law. Here also certain passages were not allowed to be translated, such as reflected on great men of the Israelite nation, such as offended decency. Anyone sufficiently intelligent might read, and of course paraphrase, the portion from the prophets. Now Clifton says in his response to that, This brings us to a very crucial and vitally important cornerstone in all scripture. The following passages from Aramaic Targums were cited by Scott Stinson in an article entitled, The Serpent and Eve, in The Vision. I guess that's a periodical. July 1998, Volume 2, Number 8, on pages 28 and 29. Targum of Jonathan. This is the material from the Targums that Scott Stinson had reproduced and Ted Wyland had attempted to refute as being Babylonian-inspired. Targum of Jonathan to Genesis 4.1 Quote, And Adam knew Eve's wife, who was pregnant by the angel Samael, and she conceived and bare Cain, and he was like the heavenly beings, and not like the earthly beings. And she said, I have acquired a man, the angel of the Lord. And then the Palestinian Targum to Genesis 4.1 And Adam knew Eve's wife, who had desired the angel, and she conceived and bare Cain, and she said, I have acquired a man, the angel of the Lord. Then continuing his citation of Stinson, where I would have stopped short. Clifton writes, in another rabbinic work, Perk de Rabbi Eliezer, 21, evidently a reference from a chapter or a paragraph. And she saw that his likeness was not of earthly beings, but of the heavenly beings. And she prophesied and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Clifton then says, it would appear from those references that the problem with Genesis 4.1 is an omission of some of the words of the Hebrew text. I will now quote Genesis 4.1 from the King James Version, and I will add the potentially needed words in italics from the Targum of Jonathan, so it will make some sense. And Adam knew his wife Eve, who was pregnant by Samael, and she conceived and bare Cain, and he was like the heavenly beings, and not like the earthly beings. And she said, I have gotten a man from the angel of the Lord. And Clifton goes on to say that once we become aware that there is a discrepancy both in the Masoretic and Septuagint texts as opposed to the Aramaic Targums on Genesis 4.1, certain comments by various biblical scholars start to make sense. Many of the best Hebrew scholars confirm there is a problem with Genesis 4.1. The Interpreter's Bible, a 12-volume collaborative work of 36 consulting editors, plus 124 other contributors, makes the following observation on this verse. 
in Volume 1, on page 517. Cain seems, quoting the Interpreter's Bible, Cain seems originally to have been the ancestor of the Kenites. The meaning of the name is metalworker or smith here. However, it is represented as a derivation of a word meaning to acquire or get, one of the popular etymologies frequent in Genesis. Hence the mother's words, I have gotten a man. From the Lord, as we read in the King James Version, is a rendering following the Septuagint and Vulgate of Et Yahweh, which is literally with Yahweh. I have gotten a man with Yahweh. And so unintelligible here that the help of, found in the Revised Standard Version, is not in the Hebrew, it seems probable that Eth should be Ath, so the mark of Yahweh, and that the words are a gloss. And that's how the interpreter's Bible attempts to atone for the gloss. But this is precisely why we should not readily dismiss the differences in Genesis 4.1 found in the Aramaic Targums. While I value the commentaries on these verses found in the Targums a little differently than Clifton does, it is clear that they are of some value. As it is presented in the various Targums, it is demonstrated that early interpreters had an understanding of Genesis 4.1 which is not presented in the surviving texts. However, as Clifton has shown from the interpreter's Bible, the surviving text is unreliable. We have previously shown that according to the many different readings of the verse which are found in Origen's Hexapla, that assessment is correct that the verse is so unintelligible that it can hardly be properly translated. And if Genesis 4.1 is the only witness that can be used to claim that Adam was the father of Cain, that witness is hardly reliable and the claim cannot stand. Now continuing with Clifton. Another scholar, Clark's commentary on volume 1, page 58, suggests a contextual problem with Genesis 4.1 as opposed to 1 John 3.12, being aware that the meaning of the Greek word wicked in this instance means Satan. He says the following, Unless she had been under divine inspiration, she could not have called her son even supposing him to be the promised seed, Jehovah, and that she was not under such an influence. Her mistake sufficiently proves, for Cain, so far remote from being the Messiah, was of the wicked one. 1 John 3.12 Clifton says, to show you that Aramaic was one of the languages spoken for that geographic area at the time of our Messiah, I will now quote from the World Book Encyclopedia in the article for Aramaic in Volume 1 where it says that it is an ancient Semitic language that was spoken throughout the Near East from about 700 B.C. to 
A.D. 700. Jesus spoke an Aramaic dialect. It was the popular tongue of Palestine at the time he lived. The books of Ezra and Daniel were written partly in the western dialect of Aramaic. Arabic finally took the place of Aramaic except in a few isolated villages. We would assert that Arabic took the place of Aramaic because in the Islamic Arab in the Islamic conquests Arabs overran the Syrians and the other whites who lived in the Middle and Near East. Continuing with Clifton, he says, let's now observe from Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary on page 167 how some scholars believed, believe some passages in the New Testament are influenced by Targums. And he quotes Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary and he says that some New Testament writers indicate knowledge of Targumic interpretations in their quotations from the Old Testament. For example, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, found in Romans chapter 12 and Hebrews chapter 10, is a quotation from Deuteronomy 32.35, but it conforms neither to the Hebrew text nor to the Greek of the Septuagint. This particular phrase comes from the Targum. Again, the words of Ephesians 4.8, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men are taken from Psalm 68.18, but the Hebrew and Septuagint texts speak of the receiving of gifts. Only the Targum on this text mentions the giving of gifts. And with this, Clifton concludes that if there were no Targums in written form at that time, how could the New Testament writers have quoted from them? And it seems instead that the New Testament writers were at least familiar with Aramaic copies of Scripture, of Old Testament Scripture, which may or may not have been related to the Targums that survive to us this day. However, the point is clear that in many aspects the Aramaic Targums must, to some degree, represent valid scripture since they are in many ways similar to versions from which the apostles were quoting. Returning to Clifton, he says, perhaps one of the more striking observations is made in a book entitled Introduction to the Old Testament by R.K. Harrison on pages 225 and 231. Here are two excerpts in Clifton quotes. Quite aside from the other considerations, there are numerous traces in the Septuagint of the influence of the Aramaic Targums, making the problem of the agreements between the Samaritan Pentateuch and the Septuagint one of considerable complexity. It can be shown that many of the quotations in the New Testament writings were derived originally from an Aramaic source or sources, or perhaps even from oral translations, from memory, or from private translations. With this evidence, Clifton says, we can see that the Septuagint was affected by Aramaic Targums. The very same Targums which Ted R. Wyland claims are Babylonian-influenced. If, then, the Aramaic Targums are unreliable, then, too, is the Septuagint. 
Further, if the Septuagint is unreliable, so too are our modern or present-day translations of the New Testament where they cite the Old Testament. In addition to this, there is a footnote at the end of chapter 42 of Job in the Septuagint, which says this in part. This is translated out of a book in the Syrian language. And Clifton says in a parenthetical remark, Some designate Aramaic as Syrian. And then he goes on to say, So if this is true, according to Wyland's criteria, that makes the book of Job also Babylonian-influenced. We don't really agree with that, and I'll explain it momentarily. As the Targum of Job, written in Aramaic, was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, it is confirmation the footnote at the end of Job in the Septuagint is probably correct. Although we must reject this statement from the same footnote, implying that Job was an Edomite who took an Arabian woman. And we do not accept the appendix to Job as being canonical. And the appendix is not found among the surviving manuscripts of the Dead Sea Scroll copies of Job or the Targum. So Clifton's assessment in this regard is incorrect. Additionally, Aramaic is Syrian. The name Syrian being a variation from the same Hebrew word Tsor, T-S-O-R, as Tyrian, and belonging to Greek and Latin, while the original Aramaic speakers of Babylon and Damascus and other cities in the region were of the tribe of Aram, who was a close relation of Shem. Let me elaborate on this word Syrian. The Hebrew word is T-S-O-R. Tsor. It's hard to pronounce that T-S sound. The Greeks figured out that they didn't like that T-S sound. So they called the city that we know as Tyre in our Bibles, which is that Hebrew word T-S-O-R, they called that Turus, T-U-R-O-S. And they called the wider region around the city of Tyre Surus, S-U-R-O-S. Taurus and Surus, Taurus giving us Tyre, and Surus giving us the modern Syria, made their way into Latin as well, from the Greek. So the Greeks took the word, the one form of T-S-O-R, tourists and applied it to the city of Tyre they took the other word derived from T-S-O-R Saurus and they applied it to the wider geographical region that's what they did they got two words out of the same word T-S-O-R or Tsor if I can possibly say it so that you may understand it or so that the sound is distinguished, let me put it that way. Clifton now continues under the subtitle, The Need for a Paraphrase, or Targum. And he says that when written, when written material is translated from one language into another, 
Some things cannot be expressed well in the secondary vocabulary. Thus, for a comprehensive understanding of the original language, sometimes an extensive paraphrase is required in the later, the later language. This is particularly true when translating from Hebrew, which is extremely concise. In other words, without a paraphrase, much of the original meaning of the primary thought would be hopelessly lost. Therefore, it would have been impossible to translate the Hebrew into the Aramaic without paraphrasing to some degree. To have translated on a literal word-for-word basis would have left much of the meaning of the text wanting. There is much more that could be presented concerning the Aramaic language in the Bible, but this will have to suffice for now. The subject is referred to as early as Genesis chapter 31, verses 46 and 47, where Jacob used a different name for a rock pile than Laban. Most think that Laban spoke in Aramaic and that Jacob spoke in Canaanite, as Laban had gone into paganism. I would rather believe he was the one that spoke in Canaanite and Jacob spoke in Aramaic. I will cite evidence concerning this later. With this, I would conclude that it is preposterous to repudiate all evidence found in the Aramaic Targums as being, quote-unquote, Babylonian-influenced. Where is the old admonition that we should study to show ourselves approved? And we will not comment on Clifton's language evidence until we encounter it later in the series. I myself have a totally different interpretation of the difference in names between Jacob and Laban. But the truth is that the Targums, or any other piece of literature that may have been preserved in the Talmud, but which is not necessarily Talmudic in origin, cannot simply be discredited in such a flippant manner as Wyland discredits the Aramaic Targums. And while, as we have previously attested, there are many things in the Aramaic Targums which we cannot accept, and which we even dislike, the Targums on Genesis 4.1 do elucidate the fact that early translators knew there was something wrong with the verse as it now stands, and they attempted to fill in the blanks from their own traditional understanding. That being said, and the verse being demonstrably corrupt, we do not have to accept this only witness that Adam had fathered Cain, especially in light of all the evidence to the contrary. One aspect of the Targums which we dislike is found in Pseudo-Jonathan, which accounts for the presence of Og of Bashan by claiming that he hid himself on the roof of Noah's Ark. With that, we may see that the global flood heresy is also quite old. So far as I remember, the writer of the Targum did not account for the presence of the other Rephaim and Anakim in such a manner, and therefore he left them unexplained. So the Targums are far from perfect. In fact, they're not perfect at all. But they do help us 
see how early, I don't want to call them Christians, because they're probably not Christians, but they're probably not all Edomite Jews either. So I'll just say early interpreters filled in some of the obvious discrepancies in scripture like accounting for the presence of Agabashan when they believed the flood was a global cataclysm or accounting for the fatherhood of Cain when they knew that he didn't come from Adam that is all thank you for listening Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night. We'll be here tomorrow night with Mike Delaney.